was last week and seven hours ago, we were in another church in Belarus and um, sharing the Word of God there, and the people there are such beautiful singers. Every single one of them seems like they born with a stellar voice, um, and they were just one after another singing these beautiful songs, and then they asked the Green Pine team to come and sing, and that was kind of a scary thing. That was, uh, we got a good portion of them sitting on the front row. I told them, if I'm going to be here preaching this morning, y'all need to be in the front row. Uh, here they are, so I appreciate you guys doing that. Uh, but we, you know, on the team that I was on, it was uh, uh, Jackie and uh, Alan and Dreama Samant, uh, Jack, uh, Gail Zekman and Barbara Anderson, and Carolyn Kimball, and myself. And, and out of those, Gail's really the only good singer. Uh, and here we are, after they sing these great songs, and and here's <laughs> six, seven of us coming up, and we're just kind of plowing our way through, you know, uh, singing to God be the glory. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I felt so inadequate at that moment. I'd, I'd preach any time, but get me up here and sing, man, you know, that's just tough to do. Uh, I think, why would anybody want to listen to me sing? And, and uh, I guess so many failures as a singer, I, I should not be used. A lot of times we feel that way, not just about singing, but many things in our life. When it comes to God working in our life, we're thinking, you know, God, how is it that you would want to use me? You know who I am. You know my selfish tendencies. You know that I'm apt to fail any moment at any time. Why on earth should you use me? I'm a failure in my life. Well, you know, when it comes down to it, God has chosen to use man for whatever reason. He has chosen to do it. And so, well, there aren't many options when it comes to... Uh, using man, either you're going to use a failure or not. Uh, man, all across the board, are failures. doesn't matter who they are, we have that tendency. I, you know, folks are act surprised with uh, Mother Teresa. Everybody says, well, you know, she's a saint. She just lived her life in, in uh, service in India for the poor and the, uh, the poverty and the, the orphans and there. And you think, you know, if anybody's going to have it, it's going to be her. And that, you know, implies that it's based on good behavior and, and service. And and then you hear, hear revelations of, of her own thoughts coming out in diary form of doubts about God and uh, the purpose of what she's doing. And, and folks are just taken back. You think, man, you mean if Mother Teresa has these doubts, where do we all fit in? And I'm just going to tell you, we all fit in as failures. All right. If I was to ask you how many of you failed in your life this past week, and I sat down and gave you enough time to think about it. You would probably list out several different episodes. Not only are there the weekly, daily failures that we have, then there are these monumental failures. You know, there's kind of things that happen in our life, mistakes that we make that seem to shape us. And we can't get past it. In fact, sometimes if we let them, those past failures can define who we are. Uh, and there's many of us that fit in that same category. Well, I just want to encourage you a little bit because I, I want to take you to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to verse, follow verse 4, and we're going to go actually through chapter 13, verse 4. And we're going to look at who the Bible often refers to as the father of faith, uh, Abraham. And we're going to look at his failure. When the father, fell, father of faith fails, what do we do? Well, one, it gives us encouragement because we find that God still uses Abram uh, in the midst of his failure. And we're going to learn some important lessons about failure as we look at Abram's example in this passage. Now, if you remember, verses 1 through 3 is the great, what we call Abrahamic covenant, when God says to Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, though you and your wife are barren, you will be a great 
nation, and you will be blessed, you will have land, and whoever blesses you will be blessed, whoever curses you will be cursed, and then in you will be the blessing of all the nations. Last time as I was here with you sharing with this, we learned that the one who ultimately fulfilled this was Jesus Christ. He himself, looking back on this and said, you know, Abraham longed to see my day. Jesus was the hope of Abraham. And thus, when we bless Jesus, we are blessed by God. When we curse Jesus, we are cursed by God. Now, in verse 4 on, we see an example of this covenant. Someone who curses Abram and is thus cursed. And so this is an example of the covenant just enacted. But, you know, when you get a, get a stage like that in your life, when God gives you a promise like that, where do you go from there? Have you ever had moments and times when you seem like your life was victorious and the Lord was doing wonderful things, and you ask yourself, where do I go from here? Well, in many cases, you go to failure. <laughs> and this is such the case with Abram uh, here. And so we're going to track the life of Abram at this point and uh, see how the Lord works in all of this, as well as how the Lord can work in our life. And so let's stand as we read, beginning with verse 4, uh, through chapter 13, verse 4, as we read this together, honoring the, the word as we read it. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Abram took Sarah's wife and Lot his brother's son and all their substance that they had gathered in the soul's they gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. Abram passed through the land into the place of Shechem, into the plain of Morah, and the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there will build it he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar unto the Lord. And call it upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was grievous in the land. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt. That he said unto Sarai his wife. Behold now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee. That they shall say this is his wife. And they will kill me. But they will save thee alive. Say I pray thee. Thou art my sister, that it may be well with me, and for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. The princess also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he treated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maidservants and she asses and camels. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidst thou, She is my sister? So I might have taken her to me to wife. And now therefore, behold thy wife, take her and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. And they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with them into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south, even to Bethel, and to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, and to the place of the altar, which he had made they there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, the journey begins so well. He does exactly what God called him to do. He, 
Hebrews says that God called him not knowing where he was going. And, and Abram was just following the lead of the Lord. And we find that he tracks from the northern part of Israel and Shechem all the way down to the south and Bethel and on to the wilderness of the desert areas of uh, Canaan. And uh, he, he's doing so well. As we read verses 4 through 6, you see the obedience of, of this man, Abram, going to Shechem as far as the Terebinth tree of Morah, which is probably a site of a local deity uh, uh, there. And then you get this phrase, verse 6, and Canaan, the Canaanites were there in the land. In other words, this is an obstacle. This is going to be a problem for the uh, promises of God. It's just mentioned there to let us know. And so Abram may have been fearful about this. In verse 7, you notice you have the re-encouragement of God to Abram. Verse 7, he says, look, yes, there's people here, but to your descendants I will give this land. And notice how he responds to this encouragement. He built an altar, and, uh, and he starts worshiping God. And then he goes down south though, to Bethel, and there he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. He worships God. And this is kind of like Abram the missionary. He is going to new places, places where they've not yet had an altar, where they've not yet called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram is the one who's going that way and putting it out there. So this is God, and he is the missionary for that purpose. And then we find that things get difficult for him, verse 10. There's adversity. There's first an obstacle with the people, then there's adversity in the famine. And uh, Canaan is a land that is nourished by rain. There's no rain. What do you do? You go down to Egypt, which is nourished by a river, not dependent on rains. And there they had uh, everything they needed to survive. And so we, we come to verse 11. He's kind of, Abram's kind of thinking about this, his strategy. What am I going to do? He looks at his wife. But boy, man, I've got a beautiful wife. And something dawns on him. You know what? Some other men might want to be with her. And it, well, if they do that, they have to kill me. Well, wait a second. And now he starts becoming fearful. He, he no longer is operating out of faith, but out of fear, motivating his life. And so notice what he says. Uh, we see in verse 11, uh, as he gets close to Egypt, he said to Sarah's wife, Indeed, I know that you're a woman of beautiful countenance. Now, ladies, you know, if he had just shut his mouth, then everything would have been great. You think, oh, i got a sweet husband. But no, he has to keep talking. Guys, <laughs> Just stop with the compliments, all right? Just go with the compliment and just stop. Don't go any further. But not, this, Abram, goes on and he says, well, well, here's what I want you to do. When the Egyptians see you, they'll want to kill me. They'll let you live. Instead, say this, you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. He, he creates a strategy and it's all based on fear. Here's the idea. He is no longer operating faith. He's no longer believing that God can handle the situation. You remember, God has blessed this marriage between Abram and Sarah. It's through him that all, through this couple, through all the nations will be blessed. A nation will come. God has made this promise. And now he's thinking, God cannot protect us. I've got to create a new strategy. The problem here, the failure begins here when he is, has a diminished view of God. And you'll find that man's failure will always be tied to that, to a diminished view of God. It could very well be that Abram had the mindset of many people in Mesopotamia at the time. When you went from one territory to another, you would have a local deity. 
and that little god, you'd have a, a statue going to that god. And when you go in that land, you worship this god uh, because he's going to protect this land. And when you go to a different land, then you worship another god. And uh, you know the power of the old god was no longer effective here. It could very well be that he had that same strategy. He's leaving Canaan, the promised land. He's going to Egypt. He's not certain if God's power is still going to be with him when he goes to a new land. The problem was he had a diminished view of the character of God. Faith is about the object, is about what, who God is. One of the reasons I'm committed to teaching the word of God verse by verse is I believe that is one of the best ways for you to know the character of God. When you know who God is, your faith will grow. In fact, Romans tells us that faith comes by the hearing of the word of God. When you learn the character of the Lord, that he is a provider God, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, that there is not a circumstance that he is limited in, there is not a relationship that his hands are tied on, there is no time, there is no age when he is not aware, when he's not knowing, and is not powerful in that time and age. It helps us to understand how God works and that we can live by faith. Uh, you know, if you had talked to me before going to uh, Belarus and, and asked me, hey, do you have any concerns about the faithfulness of your wife. You're going to be gone for 10 days. You won't be there. Anything could happen. You may come back and your marriage uh, may be in shambles because of unfaithfulness of your wife. I'd say, well, you're a fool. You know, I, I don't have one concern whatsoever. I come back, I don't have one concern whatsoever. You'd say, well, you've got great faith. Now, do I really have great faith, or do I have a great wife? You see, it flows from the object of who I trust in. Faith is to magnify the object. I have a good wife, it's not a problem. I don't worry whatsoever. You see, what God is saying is that we have a great Savior. We can be generous. He commands us to be generous in giving. And we don't have to wonder whether we're going to make it through life because we believe in a God who provides we have a great provider when i die i don't worry about whether or not i'm going to be in heaven whether oh you know what there's this one major sin in my life i'm not sure if god can forgive me of that and i go into the end of my life with fear i don't do that why you say well you must have great faith no i have a great savior who covers all of my sins and has told me that he has forgiven me and so i go with confidence even to death not because of my faith that, that gives me that confidence, but because of my Savior who gives me that confidence. It is about the character of God. And so understand that when failure comes in your life, many times it's tied to a lack of understanding who God is and that there is a diminished view. For example, I, I believe when God gave us the Ten Commandments, He was giving us ten specific areas where we can show trust in God. Ten specific areas where we can show. Why is it important that you teach your children not to lie? You say, son, don't lie. Why? You never say, why? <laughs> you say, oh, great, here we go. Well, because I said so. Why? Well, because, well, the Bible says so. And we just kind of cut it off there. <laughs> don't, don't question it. The Bible says it. Well, why? Why does the Bible say that you should not steal or that you should not lie? Because at the heart, 
is when you live a life, you say, you know, I'm not going to steal. What you're saying is I believe in a God who has ordered this world so that he can provide for me. He's given me the method of work whereby I can earn. And so I'm going to follow the instructions of God and I can entrust in him. If I live my life so that I still, I am believing that God cannot provide or the method that he's given to me to earn money is not enough. And so I must still, or that I need something more than what God has given to me. Why should we not lie? Because God is the God of truth. And he says that when you lie, you are attacking the view of God. These things that God commands us flows from the character of God. And so failure comes when we have a diminished view of God. But you notice he says he has a, he has a plan. He says, you know what, I'm not sure if God can take care of us in Egypt. I'm not sure if God's blessings and uh, flow to me while I'm in Egypt. So let me have a plan. He is God was too small, as John Phillips has said. And so, well, with this diminished view of God, man's failure also flows from an exalted view of his own wit. He's got a great, and it's a clever plan, really. But the problem with our own plans and our own wit and, and cleverness is that we cannot foresee all that can happen. It's kind of like you know, going out on a hammock. Uh, when you put a new hammock out there, you've got the old tethers tied to a tree, and, and it looks good. It looks like it can hold you up, you know? And the problem is, is when you get on it, it doesn't. There's rotten, uh, rotten fibers that you did not see. And it was good only as long as it was not holding anything. But when reality hit, when, when you hit it, it could not sustain it. You see, the thing is, the wit appears like it can hold reality. But when reality actually hits, it fails. It is a broken reed, our own mind. Notice his plan. It, it, it is a, uh, a pretty clever plan. He says, all right, Sarah, here's the deal. You go in and you start claiming that you're my sister. Technically, he was right. Technically, she was his half-sister. But you know, one thing you've got to be careful. Whenever you start saying technically, you're already down a bad road. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever heard someone say, well, technically, and you know something's wrong with it, but technically it is right. And you can't quite put your finger on what's wrong about it. Well, I imagine Sarah was probably saying, well, you know, technically you're right, but man, there's something wrong about this. Uh, well, here's one thing I found. You often cannot say technically and lovingly at the same time. You cannot usually say technically and lovingly at the same time. Technically, yes, he could say this, she could say this, but lovingly, he could not say that to his wife. Uh, and so there was a betrayal that was going on and this half-truth that was being said. Technically, it was right. Lovingly, it was disgusting. And so here's the plan. You say, you're, you're my sister, and we'll go into this. And, and that way, if anybody's interested in you, wanting to be uh, married to you, they have to talk to me as your guardian. There is no father here. I'm your brother. I'm the male figure in that society. They were the guardian. And so we've got to make a deal. And here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll get a deal, and I'll set it up long enough, long, way, way later in, in time, so that by the time the marriage date actually comes, the, the famine will be long gone, we'll, and we'll be able to, to head back to, to our homelands. And meanwhile, they'll be buttering me up and giving me all kinds of goods and riches, and, and things will go well, all right? That's the plan. That's a pretty good plan. I mean, they win, he stays married, everything's good, and, and they get richer for it. There's, there's a profit for it. And, and you see his motivation as we read. It, it says, you know, uh, verse 13, if we, if we do this plan, it will be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. Now, this is not your loving marriage that we see in the New Testament. 
This is, hey, you know, you sacrifice something here and, and it'll go well with me. And that's, and that's the, uh, the motivation behind this. However, it hit a snag. Verse 14, comes to Egypt. Uh, Egyptian seer, and she was very beautiful. At this time, she's around 65. She lives to be uh, 127, 65. Uh, evidently, she's well kept. Uh, so much so that Abram's willing to, uh, you know, thinking he'll, he'll be killed over, over her beauty. I guess that can happen, you know. Uh, Sophia Loren is uh, maybe a case in point. Someone's uh, uh, well-preserved. However, I think there's more to it than just the physical attraction, though that seems to be in play. There's also a, a composure, a personality, a poise, a spirit about her that is attractive to men. In fact, is later brought out in First Peter of the attraction of uh, Sarah that was not just an outward beauty but an inward spirit that she had. And so nonetheless, though, she was a woman to be desired. And so everybody does desire, verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh commend her, and Pharaoh takes her into his house. Oh, man, what a snag. Abram was thinking, you know what? I did not see that coming. This plan worked as long as we could bargain. But the Pharaoh's there. There's no bargaining. He just takes her. And that's the problem with man's intellect. When we exalt our wit, it's not enough to cover all the uh, infinite variables that could happen. God alone does that. And that's why the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways and knowledge. Why? Because your understanding is a broken reed. It does not account for all the unforeseen variables that could happen. You have to trust God. And so, Abram doesn't, and now he sees the price. So, Sarah's taken, verse 16. Well, he treated Abram well for her sake. He gets sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. These are the status symbols of the day. These are the wealthy things of the day. These are the the Mercedes, the BMWs, the, the things, the status symbols of that life. But you can you imagine... Just imagine for a moment, Abram. Here he is, the big charade going around, all attention on Sarai. Uh, and then Pharaoh's guards come. She's gone. <laughs> She's gone. And you go back home, and you try to sleep, wondering what's happened. Knock on the door. Oh, Abram, thank you for being here. Thank you for bringing your, your sister here. We are so pleased that your presence is here in Egypt. Let us give us some sheep. Here, have these sheep. Have a camel. Abram was listening to the camels, the bleeding of the sheep, wondering what's going on. Next day, oh, Abram, thank you for bringing your sister. Here, have some oxen. Have a, a male servant. Have some female servants. And Abram's thinking, where is my wife? Isn't it interesting? He got what he wanted. What did he want? He told Sarah, let's make this plan so that it will go well with me. And it's going well. But now he sees that all the things that he wanted was not what he needed. And I imagine Abram would have said, you know what? You take your sheep. You take your camel, you take your oxen, just give me my wife back. But he did not. 
and you could not. You see, prosperity is not always a blessing. Prosperity can be a curse. And sometimes we may, we may be thinking to ourselves, hey, you know, if I just had my mortgage paid off, if I just had this credit card paid off, if I just had all these bills taken off, if I could have had these extra things in my life, I will be happy and I will be joyous in my life. But you know, there's others that have all the toys that this world promises, this country says that you can have, and they may look at your life and think, what is it that you have that I can't pay for? What is it that you have? How do I get the joy of your life? You see, folks say, think they want joy, and they think they can get it through the possessions of the, uh, the toys of this life, and it doesn't happen. It happens through a right relationship with God. But nonetheless, here is Abram suffering these things, and with every bleeding sheep, he's thinking, oh, why did I do these things? I think that these items that he received probably was a continuous reminder of his failure at this point. It's interesting, the Bible says later on that Abram, he and Sarah, later on in life, have the same problem. They duplicate again, trying to accomplish God's purposes through their own methods and uh, try to have a family. And they use a lady named Hagar uh, to have a child, the handmaid, an Egyptian handmaid. Very well that this Egyptian handmaid came into Abram's life at this point. From that, Ishmael is born, many of the Arab uh, peoples, uh, and ultimately, Muslims come from this line uh, of, of people. And so it's just interesting to see how these come uh, about, apart. But notice what happens. Verse 17. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh. <laughs> his whole house. His whole house. Not just Pharaoh, but his whole house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. God protected what Abram gave away. He intervened. And here's something one last important lesson that we learned. We found that man's failure flows from a diminished view of God. Man's failure also flows from an exalted view of our own wit. But get this, man's failure, man's failure does not diminish God's purposes. Man's failure does not diminish God's purposes. When God has purpose in his heart to accomplish something, your failure, my failure does not prevent that from happening. He continues on. And so God says, you know what? Abram, you made a royal mistake. But I'm going to correct something here. And he sends this plague. Very likely that the plague was something that let Pharaoh and his house know that it was specifically tied to the timing and person of Sarah, Sarah and Abram. It could very well have been a plague that prevented Pharaoh from uh, consummating a marriage with Sarah to protect her. It says, and Pharaoh called Abram and said, well, what is this you've done to me? He, he knows. He figured it out. Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go your way. He says, get out of here. Get out of this land. And Abram could say nothing. Abram's lifestyle was an approach to God. Here is a pagan rebuking a prophet. And the prophet could not say one word in reply. Because he was utterly wrong. Now the sad tragedy of this is Abram does not learn. You know, some folks say, well, if you want a good counselor, find someone with many experiences. Who's lived a long time with many experiences. That's not true. If you want to find a good counselor, you're going to find someone who's lived more than just many experiences. You're going to look for someone who has lived evaluated experiences. Because mankind, if they don't evaluate their experiences, can make the same mistakes over and over again. There is such a thing as old and foolish that happens. 
to look for someone who evaluates experiences. Unfortunately, Abram does not do that at this point. In fact, you know how we know that? He repeats the same mistake in chapter 20. He does it again. Sarah, she's a good woman, puts up with this. But she does it again in chapter 20. In chapter 26, we find that his son Isaac repeats the same mistake with his wife, Rebecca. And so not only does the sin become easier, the lying becomes easier to do, it also starts spreading to their own family and children. And that's something we have to be careful of uh, in our own failures, that these things can become repetitive because we think, you know what, I got away with it. And even also they can become contagious, as we see in Isaac's life later on. But you know... God does preserve. And I was trying to figure out this. What was God preserving? Was God, does this tell us that God preserves marriages and that what mankind easily throws away, God will preserve? In this case, that's what he did. But I don't think that's a universal truth. In fact, there are many marriages that God lets people make mistakes and they, they rot, they die, these marriages. In fact, there are other marriages that are strong, and an outsider will come in, and there's rape or other things that, that will, will hurt a marriage. These things happen. So it's not just that God's going to preserve marriage. There's something else God is preserving. He is preserving Abram and Sarah's marriage for one purpose, though. You remember in chapter 12, verse 3, what's going to happen? What's the product? He says, from this union, from Abram, there will be blessings. In fact, there will be such a blessing that will bless all of the nations. And John 8, Jesus looks at that, redefines it as saying, that's me they're talking about. The, the hope of this blessing is Jesus. What was God preserving? God was preserving a line whereby a redeemer would come. God pulled out all the stops. He plagued, Abraham, plagued Pharaoh and his whole house to preserve the line from which the Redeemer would come in Jesus Christ. What was God protecting? God was protecting Jesus. Let me tell you, his purpose is still the same. He will work in the same way with Abram and Sarah as, as he will also do with you for that same purpose of letting this world see a Redeemer. He went through all uh, the mistakes of Abram and says, you know, you made a mistake, you have a mistake, and I've come up and, and mopped up after you so that this world will see Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the blessings of all the nations found in Jesus Christ, the joy of all nations. Just as he did that with Abram, he will say to you, I will work through your mistakes and the, the, the silly things that you do, and I will work through it to make sure that this world sees Jesus Christ in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, uh, we often quote, it says, all things work together to good for those who are called according to his purpose, who, who love God. And we look at that and go, oh, yes, these things are going to be good. But we don't read verse 29. 29 tells us what the good is. The good is this. The purpose of God, in verse 29, is that we'll be conformed to the image of his son. So God's purposes are still the same. In Abram's life, it was to make sure that the line was pure, kept intact, so that this world would see Jesus Christ. In our time, it's that people will see Jesus Christ in our character, in our life. Let me tell you how this plays out. About, I guess it's about five years ago. Um, my wife had a brain tumor, and um, it was a pretty, pretty uh, bad tumor. Uh, Non-cancerous, but uh, right next to the brain stem about golf ball size and looking at a pretty massive uh, surgery. And uh, before that, I was, I was just trying to entertain 
all the possibilities that could happen. I did not want to go into this surgery thinking, wishful, having wishful thinking. I want to be realistic and entertain all the things that could happen from the best to the worst possibility and that I could be without, without doing. And then I tried to figure out what was my hope in. I searched the scriptures and said, Lord, I've got to have hope in something here. What do I have hope in? And I could not honestly, in looking at the scripture, say, I'm going to have hope that everything's going to go exactly as I want it to go. That's just wishing. But I wanted hope. I wanted something I could hold on to. And the only thing I could find in the scripture was this. Romans 8, 29. Jared, whatever happens, I'm going to work it, and I've got a purpose behind it, and the purpose ultimately will bring the character of God in your life. <laughs> that wasn't very good news, because that let me know there's any ray of possibilities that could happen. It could be that I, I could be widowed, uh, or, or I could have a wife that has some paralysis of some sort, or, or you know, I, all these things God could use to conform me to the image of the Son. And here's the ultimate question. I had to ask myself, is it enough? Is it enough? If I go through a brain tumor, or if my wife goes through a brain tumor, and all that happens, and the worst thing that I can imagine happens, will it be enough to know that God is working in it, and that his reason is to conform me into his image? Is that enough for me to have joy? Now that's a hard question. But it's the question. Every single father of Jesus Christ has to answer. They have to answer. Paul, Paul did it and, and said, you know, God, will you remove this suffering from me? And God said, no, I will not. My grace is sufficient. Let me ask you, there'll be a day and time in your life when God says, will the grace I give you be sufficient? If you go through hell and you think that the purpose is only for the fact that you conform to the image of God, will that be enough for you to have joy in your life? And the scriptural answer is yes. Yes. And once I worked through that, and I, and I had to purify what my hopes were and what God's hopes were, and said, okay, Lord, the worst thing happens, but I'm conformed to your image, that's enough. It's enough. But Lord, your purposes prevail. And you'll do whatever it takes for this world to see Jesus. In Abram's day, it was to plague Pharaoh. In my day, it may be to allow failure in my life so that I will live for Jesus Christ. It may be that trashy comes, that I'll live for Jesus Christ. It may be that God will allow someone else to sin in your life in such a heinous way, with such pain. But through that, you live for the purposes of God. I'm going to tell you, failure is not the worst thing that can happen in your life. There's a lot of things worse. But the worst is not to be conformed to Jesus Christ for his purposes. The worst is not to know Jesus Christ. He is the redeemer of all mankind. So what do you do? 
You've got failure in your life. Maybe you diminished your view of God. Maybe you exalted your own wit, your own plan. What do you do? You do what Abram did in chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. He says, you know what, God, I've messed up here. I need to go back. I need to go back to that place where I worshiped God. And we have chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. He starts journeying back to the altar that he had built before. I wonder if the altar looked differently now. But you know what they did in the altar? <laughs> they took animals and they slaughtered the animals. And they burned those animals as a sacrifice to God. And in so doing, pointing to one day someone who would cover the sins of the world. And you worship the Lord. Let me tell you, you've got failure in your life. You've got mistakes in your life. Join the world. <laughs> You're like the rest of us. You're like Abraham, who's the father of faith. But you know what the difference is between someone who's failure and, uh, and someone who has faith? Failure is the same. The one who has faith says, you know what? I will not let this continue in my life. I will not wallow in this defeat. I will go back to the place where I worship God. Where is that place in your life, that last thing God told you to do? Go back to that last thing God told you to do and worship the Lord there. I've had some beautiful verses in my life and some that stand out. Psalm 103. It says, verse 13, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Can God use us with failures? You bet. That's all he uses. He uses other people and their failures too. And so what do you do when you fail in your life? Let me tell you Micah chapter 7, verse 8 and 9. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, how does he know? I don't. Pretty good chance though, talking about failure. It all applies to us. But look at this passage. You say this verse to get to Satan. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him. In other words, I know I've done stupid things. I've made mistakes and I'm going to pay the price. Because that's what we do. And I'm going to pay it until he pleads my call, cause and execute judgment for me. For he'll bring me forth to light and I shall behold his righteousness. And you go marching back to Bethel, to Shechem, and you worship the Lord there. But whatever you do, do not stay wallowing in self-pity because you failed. You're just like the rest of us. The difference is we believe in the Lord. Who can forgive us. And we do not diminish our view of God. We believe it. We trust in it. And we rise up again and go back to the last place God told us to go and worship. And you live for his purposes.